He says, Destroy it not, for a blessing is in it. I do not mean that the Lord deals thus with all men. It is only for accepted men that he has this kind way of accepting their gifts. Had you seen me when a young man and an usher when walking through the street with rolls of drawing from a boy's school, you would have guessed that I considered them of no value and fit only to be consigned to the fire. But I always took a great interest in the drawings of my own boy, and I still think them rather remarkable. You smile, I dare say, but I do so think, and my judgment is as good as yours. I value them because they are his, and I think I see budding genius in every touch, but you do not see it, perhaps, because you are so blind. I see it since love has opened my eyes. God can see in his people's gifts to him and their works for him a beauty which no eyes but his can perceive. Oh, if he so treats our poor service, what ought we not to do for him? What zeal, what alacrity should stimulate us? If we are ourselves accepted, our sacrifices shall be acceptable. The Almighty will permit us to be called his servants, and we shall find his blessings resting on all that we do. If the tree be good, the fruit is good. As is the man, so is his strength, and as is his prestige, so is his power. Accepted in the Beloved has for its accompaniment God has accepted thy works. 4. We have thus pursued our train of thought in a contrast, an explanation, and an enlargement. Let us now indulge in a few reflections. Accepted in the Beloved, may not each believer talk thus with himself. I have my sorrows and griefs, I have my aches and pains and weaknesses, but I must not repine for God accepts me. Ah me, how one can laugh at griefs when this sweet word comes in, accepted in the Beloved. I may be blind, but I am accepted in the Beloved. I may be lame, I may be poor, I may be despised, I may be persecuted, I may have much to put up with in many ways, but really these troubles of the flesh count for little or nothing to me since I am accepted in the Beloved. I have to mourn over a multitude of infirmities and imperfections, and there is never a day but what when night comes on I have repenting work to do and feel compelled to fly to the precious blood again for a renewed sense of pardon. Yes, but I am accepted in the Beloved. Ah me, I have been struggling with this evil in that and I hope I have got the victory, though I have had many a wound in the battle. Yes, but I am accepted in the Beloved. I have just now been blaming myself for my shortcomings and mourning over my many slips and failures. Yes, but I am accepted in the Beloved. I am speaking for you, or at least I am trying to interpret your meditations. I want you to let this blessed fact go down sweetly with you that whatever may be the trials of life, whatever the burdens that oppress you, whatever the difficulties of the way, 
whatever the infirmities of the body, whatever the frailties of the mind, yet still, as being in the Beloved, you are accepted. Oh, will you not be accepted when you stand where golden hops ring out perpetual hallelujahs, where every robe is spotless and every heart is sinless? Yes, but you will not be a jot more accepted then than you are now in all this noise and strife and turmoil of everyday life, for you are accepted in the Beloved now. Is not this present grace in the highest perfections? What more can you have till you behold the unveiled face of infinite love? Drink down that truth, I pray you. Let a further reflection be added also to the sweetness of your enjoyment. Think of who it is that doth accept you. It is no common person who admits us to his favor. It is the God whose name is Jehovah, the jealous God. Holy, 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 cry the seraphim unceasingly, and nothing that is defiled can ever enter his palace gates, nor can his heart endure the thought of iniquity, and yet it is he that hath accepted you. Did your brethren cast you out? Did your friend condemn you? Did your own heart accuse you? Did the devil roar upon you? What matters it? For he hath accepted you. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? He hath made us accepted in the Beloved, and if that be so, we need not fear what men can do unto us. Now just think again. He has made you accepted in the Beloved. He, that is God, has accepted you in Christ. Would you have liked any other way of acceptance one half as well? For my part, I had infinitely rather receive anything through Christ than reach it from myself. Mercy seems so much the sweeter and the better from the fact that it all comes from that dear, pierced hand. If I were this day accepted in myself, I should fear that I might lose my acceptance, for I am a poor, changeable being. But if I am accepted in the Beloved, then the Beloved will never change, and I always must and shall be accepted, come what may. Is not this a word to die with? We will meet death and face his open jaws with this word, accepted in the Beloved. Will not this be a word to rise with amidst the blaze of the judgment day? You wake up from your tomb, lift up your eyes, and ere you gaze upon the terrors of that tremendous hour, you say, I am accepted in the Beloved. What can then fill you with alarm? Forever and ever, as the cycles of eternity revolve, will not this be the core and center of heaven's supremest bliss, that still we are accepted in the Beloved. I hear strange theories nowadays of what may happen to the saints. They tell us the sinner will die out, or be restored, or something else, for they are not content with the scripture teaching of eternity, but must needs invent strange notions about the punishment of the ungodly. Then they begin to picture a new destiny for saints too, and the heaven of our fathers had sad doubts cast on it. 
I care not for their dreams, for I am accepted in the Beloved. It matters nothing what all the eternities can reveal. He that is accepted in Christ and eternally one with him has nothing before him at which he need tremble. My time is gone. I heard the warning bell just now, and so I must forbear to amplify on the many reflections that spontaneously flew out of our text, all fitted to strive anxious care, to sweeten mortal life, and to set our souls a-longing for the home which is above, where so hearty a welcome awaits us. 5. And now I wish to finish with this one practical use. If it be so that we are accepted in the Beloved, then let us go forth and tell poor sinners how they can be accepted too. Are you today, though unconverted, anxious to be found right at last? Listen, friend. If you want to be accepted, you must accept. And what do you ask? Must I accept? You must accept Christ as the free gift of God. You must accept Christ as God's way of accepting you. For if you get into Christ, you are accepted. The guiltiest of the guilty may be accepted in Christ. No matter how great and grievous their transgressions may have been, the atoning sacrifice can take all their guilt away and the perfect righteousness can justify the most heinous sinner before God. You may be accepted. Listen. If you come to Christ now and trust Him, you will be accepted. Never did one come to Christ to be rejected. You shall not be the first. Try it, and though you come into this house condemned, you shall go out accepted. If you come now and hide in those dear wounds of His as doves to hide them in the clefts of the rocks. Listen again. It is not only that you may be accepted, it is rather that you will be accepted. You cannot but be accepted in Christ. There is no sort of fear, no possibility that you shall come to Christ and be cast out. Christ must change. Truth must change. God must change towards his well-beloved. He must cease to love him ere he could refrain from loving a soul that is in him. Guilty as you are, come to Christ this morning. Come, despise not the exhortation, for you must be accepted. It cannot be but that you should be accepted if you come. And you shall be accepted at once. If at this moment you are as vile as vile can be, if while I speak you know that you are black as hell's dark night, Yet the moment that you come to Christ, you are accepted in the Beloved. Trust Him. Trust Him. Have you done so? Your sin is gone. Righteousness is imputed. You are saved. And then, to close, if you get into Christ, you shall be accepted as long as you are in Christ, and as the grace of God will never let you go out of Christ, you shall be accepted forever accepted in the Beloved, world without end. If that be the verdict of this day, it shall be the verdict of every day till day shall be no more. The hope for you dying, the song for your rising again, the verdict which shall be given out 
when the great court of justice shall sit, and you shall be tried for your life for the last time. They that sit in judgment shall say, Let that man go, he is accepted in the Beloved. If thou believest in Jesus, it shall be so, it is so, it shall be so forever and ever. God bless you all by his good spirit. For Christ's sake, amen. Chapter 4, page 32 Pleading and Encouragement Have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, saith the Lord God, and not that he should return from his ways and live? Ezekiel 18.23 For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord God. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live ye. Ezekiel 18.32 As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? Ezekiel 33.11 Sin, having a thorough possession of the human heart, entrenches itself within the soul, as one who has taken a stronghold speedily attends to the repairing of the breaches and the strengthening of the walls, lest happily he should be dislodged. Among the most subtle devices of sin to keep the soul under its power and prevent the man's turning to God is the slandering of the Most High by misrepresenting his character. As dust blinds the eye, so does sin prevent the sinner from seeing God aright. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. But the wicked only see what they think to be God, and that, alas, is an image as unlike to God as possible. They say, for instance, that God is unmerciful, whereas he delights in mercy. The unfaithful servant in the parable was quite sure about it, and said most positively, I knew that thou wast an austere man, whereas the nature of God is as opposite to overbearing and exaction as light is from darkness. When men once get this false idea of God into their minds, they become hardened in heart, believing that it is useless to turn to God. They go on in their sins with greater determination. Either they conceive that God is implacable, or that he is indifferent to human prayers, or that if he should hear them, yet he is not in the least likely to grant a favorable answer. Men darkly dream that God will not attend to the guilty and the miserable when they cry to him, that their prayers are not good enough for him, that he expects so much from his creatures that they cannot even pray so as to please him, that in fact he seeketh a quarrel against us and is a taskmaster who will grind all he can out of us. Being themselves slow to forgive, they judge it to be highly unlikely that the Lord will pardon such sins as theirs. As they will not smile on the poor or the fallen, they conceive that the Lord will never receive unworthy ones into his favor. Thus they belial the Most High. They make him who is the best of kings to be a tyrant. 
him who is the dearest of friends they regard as an enemy, and him whose very name is love they look upon as the embodiment of hate. This is one of Satan's most mischievous devices to prevent repentance. As in the old times of plague, they fastened up the house door and marked a red cross upon it, and thus the inhabitants of that dwelling were sealed unto death. Even so the devil writes upon the man's door the words, No hope. And then the sick soul determines to die, and refuses admission to the physician. No man sins more unreservedly than he who sins in desperation, believing that there is no pardon for him from God. An assault where the watchword is, no quarter, usually provokes a terrible defense. The pirate who is hopeless of pardon becomes reckless in his deeds of blood. Many a burglar in the old time actually went on to murder without remorse because he thought he might as well be hanged for a sheep as for a lamb. When a man believes that there is no hope for him in the way, he determines that he will get what he can out of the wrong way, and if he cannot please God, he will at least please himself. If he must go to hell, he will be as merry as he can on the road, and as he puts it, he will die game. All this comes of a mistaken view of God. Do you not see the likeness between sin and falsehood? They are twin brothers. Holiness is truth, but sin is a lie, and the mother of lies. Sin brings forth falsehood, and then falsehood nourishes sin. Especially in this fashion doth falsehood maintain sin by slandering the God of love. He is a God ready to pardon and by no means hard to be moved to forgiveness. Why do men stand off from confessing their wrong and finding mercy? He is not a God who taketh pleasure in the miseries of men. Why do they think so ill of him? His ear is not dull to the cry of sorrow. His heart is not slow to compassionate distress. On the contrary, he waiteth to be gracious. His mercy endureth forever. He delighteth in mercy. Why will men run from him? God is love immeasurable, love constant, boundless, endless. Who is a pardoning God like thee, or who hath grace so rich and free? Part of our business as ministers of Christ is to bear witness to the love-kindness of the Lord against falsehood with which sin dishonors his goodness. I desire to do so this morning and to do it in right down earnest in the hope that those of you who are convinced of sin may this day be able to rest in the mercy of God, even that exceeding mercy which he hath revealed in Jesus Christ his Son. I have been very much struck with several letters which I have this week received from deeply wounded souls. God is at work among us with the sword of conviction. I have felt a great degree of joy in receiving these letters. Painful as they are to their writers, they are very hopeful to me. I am sorry that any persons should be near despair and should continue in that condition but anything is better than indifference. 
I am not sorry to see so shut up in the position of the law, for I hope they will soon come out of the prison house into the full liberty of faith in Christ. I must confess my preference for these old-fashioned forms of conviction. It is my judgment that they produce better and more stable believers than the modern superficial methods. I am glad to see the Holy Spirit overturning, throwing down, digging out of the foundations, and making you like cleared ground, that he may build upon you temples for his praise. How earnestly do I pray that the Lord may make of these convinced ones champions for the doctrines of free grace, comforters for his mourners, and consecrated servants for his kingdom. I look for large harvests from this deep subsoil plowing. The Lord grant it for his name's sake. I can see in several who have written to me that their main idea is erroneous, that they have fallen into a wrong notion about God. They do not conceive of Him as the good and gracious God which He really is. This error I am eager to correct. Listen to me, ye mourners. I desire to tell you nothing but sober truth. God forbid that I should misrepresent God for your comfort. Job asked his friends, Will ye talk deceitfully for God? And my answer to that question is, never. I would not utter what I believed to be a falsehood concerning the Lord, even though the evil one offered me the bait of saving all mankind thereby. I have noticed in certain revival meetings a wretched lowering of the truth upon many points in order to afford encouragement to men, but all such sophistry ends in utter failure. Comfort based upon the suppression of the truth is worse than useless. Lasting consolation must come to sinners from the sure truth of God, or else in the day when they most want it, their hopes will depart from them, as the giving up of the ghost. I will therefore speak to you the truth in its simplicity concerning the blessed God whose servant I am. I beseech you no longer to persevere in your slander of his infinite love. O you that fear your sin and dare not put your trust in your forgiving God, I pray you to learn of him and know him aright, for then shall the text be fulfilled in you. They that know thy name will put their trust in thee. May the Holy Spirit come now in all his brightness that you may see God in his own light. As for me, I feel my duty to be one in which nothing can avail me but that same spirit. Christendom used to wonder that any minister could be saved, seeing our responsibilities are so great. I am entirely of his mind. Pray for me that I may be faithful to men's souls. Notice that in each one of my texts the Lord declares that he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but in each following passage the statement is stronger. The Lord puts it first as a matter of question, as if he was surprised that such a thing should be laid to his door. He appeals to man's own reason and asks, Have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, saith the Lord God, and not that he should return from his ways and live? 
Oh souls, can you really think that God desires your damnation? Can you be so demented as soberly to believe such a false accusation? Will such a theory hold water for a single minute? After all the goodness of God to multitudes of rebellious men, can you allow such a dark thought to linger near your mind that God can have pleasure in men being sinners and ultimately destroying themselves by their iniquities? Your own common sense must teach you that the good God is grieved to see men sin, that he would be glad to see men of a better mind, and that it is sad work to him to punish the finally obstinate and impenitent. He cries most plaintively, Oh, do not this abominable thing that I hate. He puts it here as a question of wonderment that men should so grossly malign him as to think that the God of love could have any pleasure in men perishing by their sins. But then, in the next place, in our second text, God makes a positive assertion. Knowing the human heart, he foresaw that a question would not be enough to end this matter. For man would say, he only asked the question, but he did not give a plain and positive statement to the contrary. He gives us that clear assurance in our second text. I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord God. Wherefore turn yourselves and live ye. When the Lord speaks, he is to be believed, for he is God that cannot lie. We know that this speech of his is authentic. It comes to us by an inspired prophet concerning whose call by God we entertain no doubt whatever. Let us then believe it heartily. If I were to state this as my own opinion, you might do as you pleased about believing it. But since God saith this, then we claim of you all as God's creatures that you believe your Creator and that this statement be never questioned again. Where the word of a king is, there is power. Power, I trust, to silence all future debate upon the willingness of God to save. But still, as if to end forever the strange and ghastly supposition that God takes delight in human destruction, my third text seals the truth with the solemn oath of the Eternal. He lifts his hand to heaven and swears, and because he can swear by no greater, he swears by himself, not by his temple, nor by his throne therein, nor by his angels, nor by anything outside of himself, but he sweareth by his own life. Jehovah that liveth for ever and ever saith, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. The man who dares to doubt the oath of God will be guilty of an arrogant presupposition which I would not like to impute to one of you. Shall God be perjured? I tremble at having ever suggested such a thing, and yet if you do not believe the Lord's own oath, you will have denied the value of his oath when he swears by his own life. What he thus affirms must be true. Let us bow before it and never entertain a doubt about it. Most miserable of all men that breathe must they be who will dare to attack the veracity of God when God to confirm their confidence doth put himself upon an oath. 
Let us hear the voice of the Lord in his majesty, like a peal of distant thunder. As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. I invite your earnest consideration of this utterance that's given in the form of a question, an assertion in a solemn oath. 1. And I notice first the assertion that God finds no pleasure in a sinner's death. Really, I feel ashamed to have to answer the cruel libel which is here suggested, yet it is the English of many a man's doubts. He dares not come to God and trust Him because he darkly dreams that God is a terrible being who does not wish to save him, who is unwilling to forgive him, unwilling to receive him into his favor. He suspects that God finds some kind of terrible delight in a soul's damnation. That cannot be. I need not disprove the falsehood. God swears to the contrary and the falsehood vanishes like smoke. I will only bring forward certain evidence by which you who are still under the deadly influence of the falsehood may be delivered. First, consider the great scarceness of God's judgments among the sons of men. There are people who are always talking of judgments, but they are in error. If a theater is burnt down, or if a boat is upset on the Sabbath, they cry, Behold a judgment! Yet churches and meeting houses are burned, and missionaries are drowned when upon the Lord's own business. It is wrong to set down everything that happens as a judgment, for in so doing you will fall into error of Job's friends and condemn the innocent. The fact is there are but few acts of divine providence to individuals which can definitely be declared to be judgments. There are such things, but they are wonderfully rare in this life, considering the way in which the Lord is daily provoked by presumption and blasphemy. It was a judgment when Pharaoh's hosts were drowned in the Red Sea. That was a judgment when Korah, Dathan, and Abiram went down alive into the pit. There were judgments later on in the Church of God when Ananias and Sapphira fell dead for lying against the Holy Ghost and when Elimaeus the sorcerer was blinded for opposing Paul. Still, these are few, and in later days the authentic instances are equally rare. Does not the Lord himself say that judgment is his strange work? Among his own people there is a constant judgment of fatherly discipline, but the outer world is left to the gentle regime of mercy. This is the age of patience and long-suffering. If God had taken any pleasure in the death of the wicked, some of you who are now present would long ago have gone down to hell. But he hath not dealt with you after your sins, nor rewarded you according to your iniquities. If God were constantly dealing out judgment for lying, how many who are now here would by this time have received their portion in the burning lake? If judgments for Sabbath-breaking had been commonly dealt out, the city of London would have been destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah. But God reserveth his wrath to the day of wrath. For a while he winketh at man's obstinacy. 
for this is not the place of judgment, but of forbearance and hope. The fewness of visible deeds of judgment upon ungodly men in this life proves that God takes no delight in them. And then secondly, the length of God's long-suffering before the day of judgment itself comes, proves how he wills not the death of men. The Lord spares many guilty men throughout threescore years and ten, bearing with their ill manners in a way which ought to excite our loving gratitude. Youthful folly is succeeded by manhood's deliberate fault, and that by the persistence of mature years, and yet the Lord remains patient. Some of you have rejected Christ after having heard the gospel for many years. You have stifled your conscience when it has cried against you, and you have done despite to the Spirit of God. You have rebelled against the light and have committed greater and yet greater sin, but God has not cut you down. If he had found pleasure in your death, would he have suffered you to live so long? You have cumbered the ground, not two or three years as the barren fig tree did, but two or three scores of years you have stood fruitless in the vineyard of God, and yet he spares you. Some have gone beyond all this, for they have provoked God by their open unbelief and by their abominable speeches against himself, his son, and his people. They have tried to thrust their finger into the eye of God. They have spit in the face of the well-beloved and persecuted him in the person of his people. Yet the Lord had not killed them out of hand, as he might justly have done. Have you not heard his sword stirring in the scabbard? It would have leaped forth from its sheath if mercy had not thrust it back and pleaded, O thou sword of the Lord, rest and be quiet. It is only because his compassions fail not that you are favored with the loving invitations of the gospel. Only because of his infinite patience doth grace still wrestle with human sin and unbelief. Let us each one cry, Lord, and am I yet alive, not in torments, not in hell? Still doth thy good spirit strive with the chief of sinners dwell. Tell it unto sinners, tell, I am, I am, out of hell. Furthermore, remember the perfection of the character of God as the moral ruler of the universe. He is the judge of all, and he must do right. Now, if a judge upon the bench were known to take delight in the punishment of offenders, he ought to be removed at once, for it would be clear that he was thoroughly unfit for his office. A man who would take pleasure in hanging or imprisoning would be of the foul breed of Judge Jeffreys and other monsters, from whom I trust our bench is forever purged. But if I heard it said that a judge never pronounced the sentence of death without tears, and when he came home from the court and remembered that some had been banished for life by the sentences which he had been bound to deliver, he sat in a moody, unhappy state all the evening, I should say, yes, that is the kind of person to be a judge. Aversion to punishment is necessary to justice in a judge. Such in one is God, 
who taketh no pleasure in either sin or in punishment, which is the consequence of sin. He hates both sin and its consequence, and only comes at last to heavy blows with men when everything else has failed. When the sinner must be condemned, or else the foundations of society would be out of course, then he delivers the terrible sentence. But even then it is with unfrained reluctance, and he cries, How can I give thee up? The great judge of all seems to descend from the glory of his judgment seat and show his more familiar face to you in the text, as in effect he cries, I have judged, and I have condemned, and I have punished, but as I live I find no pleasure in all this. My pleasure comes when men turn unto me and live. If any further thoughts were necessary to correct your misbelief, I would mention the graciousness of his work in saving those who turn from their evil ways, the care which the Most High has taken to produce repentance, the readiness with which he accepts it, and the abounding love manifested to returning prodigals are all evidences indisputable that God finds no pleasure in the death of the wicked but in their salvation. To prevent the death of the wicked, the Lord devised the plan of salvation before all worlds, and those who accept that plan find that the Lord has provided for them a substitute in the person of his own dear Son, who is indeed his own self, and that in his person God himself has borne the penalty due to sin, that thus the law might be solemnly honored and the divine justice vindicated. The Lord has gone up to the tree and bled his life away thereon, that God might be just, and yet the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. Does not this prove his delight in salvation? The Holy Spirit comes on purpose to renew the heart and take the stone away from it, that men may become tender and penitent. Does not this show that God delights to save? The whole resources of the Godhead go forth with spontaneous delight for the salvation of those who turn from their sins. They go forth before men to turn, to turn them that they may be turned. God is even found of them that saw him not, and he sends his grace to those who cried not after it. As if God were indignant that such a charge should be laid against him, that he delighteth in the death of any. He preferred to die himself upon the tree rather than let a world of sinners sink to hell. To prove the desire of God that men should live, his son abode for thirty years and more on this poor earth as a man among men, and his Holy Spirit has dwelt in men for all these centuries, bearing all the provocations of an erring and ungrateful people. God has proved himself in multitudes of ways to be not the destroyer, but the preserver of men. He that is our God is the God of salvation. Salvation belongeth unto the Lord. Thus would I try to vindicate the ways of God to men. When men are to be tried for their lives, if their friends are able to do so, they come to them in prison and say, It is a very hopeful thing for you that it is not judge so-and-so, who is terribly severe. You are to be tried before the kindest man on the bench. 
Many a prisoner has plucked up courage at such news. And, O oh poor sinner, you who dare not trust God, let me chide you into hope by reminding you that love sits embodied on the throne of judgment this day, and that he who must and will condemn you, if you turn not from your sins, nevertheless will find no pleasure in that condemnation, but will be loath to make bare the acts of execution. Will you not turn to him and live? Do not his compassions beckon you to make a full surrender and find grace in his sight? 2. But now secondly, God finds no alternative but that men must turn from their wicked ways or die. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked but that the wicked turn from his way and live. It is one or the other, turn or burn. God with all his love to men cannot discover any third course Men cannot keep their sins and yet be saved. The sin must die, or the sinner must die. Be it known to you, first, that when God proclaims mercy to men upon this condition, that they turn from their sins, this proclamation is issued out of pure grace. As a matter of bare right, repentance does not bring mercy with it. Does a murderer receive pardon because he regrets his deed? Does a thief escape from prison because at last he comes to be sorry that he was not honest? Repentance makes no available amends for the evil which is done. The evil still remains and the punishment must be executed. It is of grace then that I am permitted to say, Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways. It is because at the back of it there is a great sacrifice. It is through an all-sufficient atonement that repentance becomes acceptable. The Son of God has bled and died and made expiation for sin, and now he is exalted on high to give repentance and remission of sins. Today the word of the Lord is, Repent ye and believe the gospel. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is not according to the law, which gives no space for repentance, but it is a pure matter of grace. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue Edmonton that's E D M O N T O N Alberta abbreviated capital A capital B Canada T six L three T five you may also request a free printed catalog and remember that John Calvin in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, 
commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.